0: This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how science fiction, horror, fantasy, and comics help us explore our humanity. All right, today we are talking about The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton, written by comedy legend Dave Thomas and Max Allen Collins, who you remember from The Road to Perdition. So, great to have you both on. My first question has got to be, how did the two of you team up? Well, Max... You want to tell? The short answer is
1: SpongeBob introduced us. <laughs> All right. I'll, shall I give the long answer? Yeah. Uh, the, the long answer is that uh, for reasons uh, unbeknownst to me, SpongeBob, whose whose name is uh, Tom Kenny, is a fan of mine. And at San Diego Con, every it seems like every year he'd track me down, and and I'd be very complimented and a little astounded, and because I was a was and I am a Mr. Show fan, and think the world of of Tom Kennedy and his comedy. And so, uh, this last time I was at the con, which was the con, the last con before, uh, COVID, yeah, me too, yeah, took everybody into into lockdown. Tom said, "I'm I'm going to be having uh, I'm going to be having lunch with with Dave Thomas, and I know you're an SCTV fan. Would you like to come along and meet him?" And I said, "Oh." I really wish I could. But you know, we have tickets to leave tomorrow night. I'm sorry, my wife and I are flying out. Well, this nice gentleman, he probably you probably won't be able to tell just how nice a gentleman he is as this interview. Yeah. But he he called me up basically just to say, uh, you know, uh, Tom said, uh, you know, you're a fan. And, and I and I, you know, I just want to say hello. And we talked for I don't know, probably 90 minutes, finding out that we had Everything in common from we both had made movie directed movies. I had directed yeah. one yeah. called The Experts. He had directed one called The Expert. We had both had open heart surgery, not at the same time, right? But it was still there were just an enormous amount of coincidences, uh parallels. Boy, he then he happened to mention says, you know, I'm I'm working on a novel, and I I said, let me take a look at it. I loved it, and just kind of said, uh, "Please, Mr. Thomas, could I work on this book with you?"
0: Sci-fi talk returns in a moment.
2: Wasn't quite I that mentioned... pointed, but that's very <laughs> kind of you to put it that way. No, no, no. Uh, for, first of all, let's let, let's get things clear. I wasn't working on the novel when I talked to him. I'd already put it aside, and I'm a terrible procrastinator. And I'd originally you go blind mentioned... from
1: that, Dave. That's you terrible. can go blind from that.
2: Well, I went blind from something else earlier, so whatever. <laughs> so uh, the thing is, I tried to pitch this as a television show and then nobody, the executives' eyes rolled back in their heads and I thought, okay, here we go. And um, so I thought, well, I'll try to write it as a novel. And I only got three chapters in and then I put it aside. When Max, who's an accomplished and uh, professional and, and multi-text writer, he's written over 100 books, says to me, what am I doing? I go, well, you know, I'm working on a novel. (laughs) But the reality is, I wasn't. It was kind of put aside. I'd done three chapters, and I thought, maybe one day I'll finish this. So I never would have finished it if it hadn't been for Max, and that's
0: my story.
1: That's generous.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, we had, Dave and I were kind of talking before you came on, Max, and There's a multiverse and quantum theory and all that, but you are crafting your own story. So you kind of have to set some rules on how things are going to work. So how did that process uh, go? How how did you guys get into that? Well, Well,
1: Dave handled the the, the quantum physics because he had an interest in uh, the many worlds theory. And this is a theory developed by Hugh Everett III, a
2: Princeton physicist in the 50s. And essentially his concept was based on the famous Schrodinger's cat in a box experiment that the cat's either alive or dead, and it depends on the observer as to whether the cat's alive or dead. Hugh Everett believed that for every binary choice in life, you pull up at an intersection, you go left or you go right, that the unrealized choice, the road not taken, actually is real. And that that universe and all the choices that you would have made subsequently as you went down that right-hand turn in that road, actually exist. Now, of course, his rival physicists, people like Max Planck, said, this is bullshit. We don't believe that. And they developed what they called the was the Copenhagen Interpretation. And essentially, they said, no, when you make the realized choice, the unrealized choice, the road not taken, that collapses and that doesn't exist. Well, this would have been a good solid rebuttal were it not for the fact that the instruments that measure things at the subatomic level got better and better and better. And pretty soon, years after uh, Hugh Everett third came up with this theory and Max Planck tried his best to rebut it, they're firing electrons through slits, trying to determine whether or not they go left or right. And lo and behold, they go left and right. The same electron is going left and right and exists in two separate places. In other words, two universes, they're entangled, they are the same electron. And so understanding what goes on at the quantum world is almost impossible because it's not the way we think. It operates in a way that's not sort of like common knowledge. You know, we drop a fork and it falls and we go, yes, This is a repeated, every time I drop that fork, it will fall. It doesn't work that way at the quantum level. And even Richard Feynman, one of the pioneers of quantum think quantum mechanics, said anyone who thinks, anyone who says they understand quantum mechanics is either a fool or a liar. And that's really true. So I don't really understand it either. But that's where the five, that's that's the side part of our story. The phi part of it is that, as in any time travel story where you try to work out your time travel and make it as accurate as possible, you ultimately do have to pull the curtain back and reveal the time machine. That's where you cross from psi to phi. And so we had to create a gizmo like that. And we did in the basement of this physicist's uh, house in Cambridge, Massachusetts where he was doing a quantum experiment on the many worlds. And so he had a quantum computer set up, and we kind of fudged the fact that a quantum computer actually has to be kept refrigerated almost at Kelvin, and, and with him having beat that. And then we had a little box that was a particle accelerator that worked in the same basic principles as the particle accelerator in CERN, Switzerland, but it was a... It used plasma as the medium, so he was able to miniaturize it. This is the MacGuffin part. None of this is true. None of this could be true. But it's sort of like it's taking threads of quantum theory and weaving them together into a box that became our time machine. Yeah, and it's cool. so Jimmy Layton connects these two plugs together, mm-hmm. the batteries to the quantum machine, and they become a steering wheel. And all of a sudden he's transported to another version of his life a thousand miles away in Chicago. Yes. Yes. No more for me on the science.
0: (laughs) It took me weeks to explain the science to Dave. (laughs) Well, it's funny because you mentioned that theory. And even there's that line uh, that that you just mentioned is also in the book, which I thought was was a cool way of uh, putting it in. uh, Yeah. in, in, In a particular story. It, you know, it's set in 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 Massachusetts, Boston area. Uh, Max, is that something you both were familiar with, or did you kind of have to learn the landscape a little?
1: Uh, not at all. I I live in Iowa, and uh, while it looks like we're sharing an office, a, a, a quite demented office, I might man, I might say. But uh, <laughs> Dave's on is on the coast, and I'm I'm on I I'm flyover country here, and neither one of us. Uh, live in boston i think dave spent some time there but not i don't think you ever lived there did you dave no never did so it's it's research Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i mean you can get on google maps that little orange band icon and you can literally drive around oh oh, yeah boston and so that's what i did we both watched as much research as we could, like the wives of South Boston, the housewives of South Boston, <laughs> which is a, a fun way to get into the sort of the way they think and the way they the way they talk. And, um, and it was, it was fun, but it was again, research. Yeah. And yeah. That's what writers have to do.
0: What about Jimmy? Uh, where did he kind of come from? I mean, no, he's, he's essentially a, uh, a career criminal. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had a bad, very bad childhood, an abusive father, which kind of led him in this direction. But did you base him on any particular person or is this something you both discussed on who you wanted your protagonist to be?
1: Well, well uh, Dave created Jimmy because he existed in those two or three chapters he had written before I came on board. And you know, one of the uh, non scientific and magic aspects of writing, and particularly with collaboration, is that we didn't realize it, why we had done it. But the real reason Jimmy is who he is, is he has to start someplace lowly to be able to, to rise to a better place. And, and that's the sort of mythic fairy tale aspect of this. This is the, the Groundhog Day, it's a wonderful life a Christmas carol kind of aspect of this that we stumbled onto when we started to say, well, what, what lives should he live? And we stumbled onto, they should be progressive. He should be moving on to, to better lives. And they don't always seem that way. Some of these lives are pretty terrible, but he starts out in such a low position, lowly position that, that, you know, even being a bank robber is a step up, for example. And so, uh, you know, and I think, ultimately because dave and i both really like that kind of story i remember one of the first times we realized how much we had in common was when we both said one of our favorite movies was here comes mr jordan which is not a movie on the 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 tip of everybody's tongue
0: oh i I love that movie
1: yeah and and, i mean most i guess most people probably talk about the remake with with warren beatty uh heaven can wait which was the original title of the the yeah
0: that's right
1: and I've loved that movie since I was a little kid. And uh, Robert Montgomery was a real punk
2: um. a boxer. <laughs> oh, and yeah. It was, and it was great seeing that punk have this transcendental experience. And Jimmy Layton is a punk. He's, yeah. a, he's a low life. There's an aspect of me that's a punk in a low life. And, you know, you always have to. You always have to pull on yourself, and there's another aspect of me that is totally fascinated with being a criminal with stealing stuff't <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i I just think I've always had that fantasy like when I saw the movie Heat with de Niro and uh, yeah yeah I, I I was rooting for the bad guys I always am you know i i there's a part of me that would love to do a bank job that would love to. Pull off a big scam and come away with millions and millions, you know. And then they never have a good end. It's always, it always becomes bad. That said, that you don't do it for the end. You do it for the high. You do it for the high of the stealing. So uh, there's a little aspect of that in Jimmy and a little aspect of that
1: in me. <laughs> well, well, Dave, I, I don't know if you even know this, but my very first books, the first series I that I, I had was a about a character called Nolan, and Nolan was a professional thief, and the first book I wrote was called Bait Money, which was a bank robbery novel. Uh, bait money is the money that they hold back, that, that the tellers have to give to thieves that are marked bills, and that was a term I'd heard my wife use, and I built a novel around it, and I just had the first the first book in that in that series in 33 years published, they asked me wow. to do a sequel after all these years. I had done about, uh, a, I think there's about 10 books about this particular character. But I don't think you've even read any of those or even knew about I that. I haven't. That I had no. done heist. I had done all these heist novels. And well, you've written over 100 novels, Max. So yeah, let's be fair. <laughs> and you've read over 100, I understand.
2: <laughs> but, but not from the same guy. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> uh.
0: Sci-fi talk with Tony Tejado returns in a moment. It is interesting. the The theme that kind of jumps out at me is, you know, and Dave actually mentioned it. What, why? If you turn right, wow. what happens if you turn left? What's your life like based on your own decisions? And I think that's what connects people to these kind of stories. What if I did this? Maybe if I married this person or whatever, or didn't do this or that, uh, you know, both we'll talk about that aspect of it, because I, I find that part of it fascinating. And you always second guess yourself anyway.
2: Well, for us, it was important that Jimmy doesn't go from the life of a small time thief, a second story man, to becoming the president of Argentina. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just insane. <laughs> So he has to, he has to, all the lives that he inhabits have to be sort of possible lives that would have come from being a small time thief. So we have him, he becomes a soldier in Afghanistan. Well, he could have enlisted. He he becomes a boxer. Well, he could have been a boxer too if he had trained. He becomes uh, a better thief, like a a bank heist uh, thief. He becomes a priest. So these are all things that would have been available choices to an abused orphan from the south side of boston and
1: and they're just different they're different lives that's all and, and the one thing that the the one time where it seems like we're sort of breaking that rule is right off the bat where he shows up in a really great life where there's all kinds of money and he's living in chicago in a beautiful apartment but as the as the chapter proceeds you find out that this all grows out of a high, out of something he stole at that his wife built and that his wife yes was smart enough to build into Not him but he could have again it's this yes you could have if you turned left or turned turned right instead of that and and that's one of the questions that we all ask like you know i look i look at the relationship i have with dave, with dave it seems like fate it seems like fate i don't think i believe in fate but but every now and then something happens to you and you say that just really seems plotted and and I'm not saying I believe in that but I make these observations I don't know what I believe
2: anymore because <laughs> the more I read the less I know yeah I mean it's like I feel like an idiot and you know when you start reading when I started reading the quantum physics stuff I started to realize well, okay, if it's true that you, there is another possibility that you could live in another version of your life, then there may be other possibilities that are sort of beyond the borders of known science that could exist. There's a book that came out a while ago called Beyond the Supernature. And, and the concept of the book was that there's known science and then there's the stuff beyond it that they consider paranormal and science fiction. Because it hasn't been, they haven't figured out the science of it yet. But they didn't have the science of getting, you know, a man to the moon until 1969. So, you know, and, but H.G. Wells was on it theoretically before that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what I know. And I don't know what I believe. I've, we, we, I had to write some stuff for this Chinese company called Tencent. And I started to get into the sort of yin and yang of like, you know, uh, Chinese mythology and Chinese thinking. Oh, and yeah. I started to realize, holy shit, this is like quantum physics. It's, it's a spiritual version of quantum physics. So was it that? Do these things tie together? I have no idea. I just don't know. But that makes it fun for a writer, because if you don't know, then you can write about it and have fun with it.
1: I have to say that the most fun of of this process are the phone calls with Dave, where we bounce ideas off each other. Yeah, and, and his idea makes me have an idea, and my idea has makes and 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 a point I was making to another to a friend of mine who I've collaborated with on some other things was people don't understand that when you particularly for celebrities involved, they don't understand that you're doing the doing this not to save time or make it easier because both of us worked at least as hard as we would have worked on this alone i couldn't have done what i did without him and i don't think he could have done what what we we did without me so it's 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 two plus two equals at least five but you don't it's not a time-saving exercise my god we worked on this book what six months dave yeah and for me, I mean, I I do sometimes I do five books a year. Now you people that know how to do math are going to figure out that I don't have get to do six months five times in one year. Well, I'm we pretty also, sure.
2: i am pretty sure this, this is a COVID novel too. Oh yeah, yeah, oh sure, COVID. And we were at computers like it was
1: either this Zoom or it was on the phone. But yeah, we have not been in the same room together.
0: No. Wow. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of the new technology these days. Is this uh, the first book in a series, or is this a standalone? We don't know. If they yeah. like it well enough, who knows? We
1: can be had. <laughs> so there's room for further adventures. Well, we want to have further adventures together. Yeah. Whether it's another novel, whether it's a screenplay, whether it's a TV show. or uh, But it's, I, I can't imagine not working with Dave again. The other thing is we might work on this... In a different form right i I think this
2: book is a natural for a tv uh show spin-off because you get to do like quantum leap you get to do a different version of this guy's life every week but he's not inhabiting famous people it's just him and so all the people in his world would are the same but slightly different versions of themselves so that would allow uh, actors a fabulous opportunity Oh, play slightly different versions of themselves each week. You know, you'd have a company of players that would get to play a a parade of different Mm -hmm. characters over the course of a few seasons. So I I think it would be great, you know, as a
0: with the many outlets available in streaming is I think this would be a natural for streaming. Yeah. Uh, You know, and in this way, you don't have to worry about censorship or anything like that. You can do whatever you want with it. And Dave makes a really great
1: point, I think, uh, because at Quantum Leap, which was a show show at the time I I enjoyed very much. Yeah. But Jimmy's not going to become, he's not going to make a, you know, he's not going to move into being a jet pilot. Right, right. He's not going to be a surgeon suddenly. And he's just, and he also sometimes is in a world so much similar to his own that that things start to blur. And he's like, Am I back? There's a point in the book where he shows up in a prison hospital, and in the previous version, he'd been in a tent situation at a crime scene, and the police were there, and he's thinking now, did I, did I not jump this time? Am I still here? And it takes a while for him to figure it out. And, and then toward the end of the book, he starts saying, I think I'm getting good at this because he really isn't, but, but he's getting better. He's getting better. The,
2: the other thing Max pointed out earlier is that there's a kind of a growth curve for the character. Yeah. And this came out of the fact that when he did his first hop to his first life where Bernadette had actually made their lives better and had taken money, taken some information that he had stolen and then allowed her to do something that turned out to be inside trading, she made a lot of money. So now, and when he hears how much money he has, he immediately thinks, well, we're married now, so half of that's mine. So you get, you know, the minimum I'm going to get out of this is 25 mil. So even though he's in a bigger world, he's still a small thinker. Yeah. He's a small thinking guy from the first world. So what we wanted to do was to gradually get, make him humbled by the experiences that he goes through and make his thinking a little bigger, make him more of a big thinker than he was at the outset, you know? And, uh, and then that was fun. I think we had a good time doing that.
1: We did. And I think, I I think it's something that people will relate to because there's going to be a part of their brain that says, Oh my God, what if I suddenly was in the middle of a boxing ring? <laughs> what would I do? I mean, because you do, you do, you do go with Jimmy, and then we have another whole story. There's there's two stories in this book that interweave, and uh, there's actually a a very famous science fiction author who who taught me through his work how to do this, and that's Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yes, because he's the he, he's really the guy that was so good at setting up two storylines that are intertwined, but he'd bring you up to a cliffhanger. And then he'd make you read a chapter about the other story. And you're like, well, I want to find out what happened to the cliffhanger. Then he'd take you to, that, to another cliffhanger, but then put you in the other story. So that's the kind of thing where you just read through the night. You, you, have, no, you have no break. And, uh, you know, God help people, you know, my age, you have to take a bathroom break once in a while, because it's, <laughs> it's a rough life when you're reading that kind of story that has that kind of narrative drive. So here's another thing that I think is an important layer to
2: the book. Very early on in the book, the first version I came up with, the two or three, the three chapters that I sent to Max, it was just about Jimmy hopping from one world to another. The layer of the two cops investigating the shooting of Jimmy Layton was not something that was in my first version. That's something that Max and I put in. And really it was an homage to Max because – Max is this accomplished mystery writer that knows how to do those kind of stories. And his fans are going to be going, Hey, where's Max's mystery. Well, there it is. And, but in a weird way, this worked really well because it allowed us to hop in alternate chapters from Jimmy in this life to the investigation. And at the time that Jimmy connects those two cables, he
0: also gets shot in the head. That's right. So
2: who's the guy who shot him in there? Who's the, who was down there? Who's that, hey,
0: that was my question. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and, and so that becomes the whodunit kind of mystery thread. And then our goal was to try to bring these two worlds together by the end of the book in a way that was satisfying for the reader and for us. And we didn't know when we started out. We didn't know how we were going to do it. And when we discovered it, I remember it was like a real eureka moment. And the two of us were so happy. It was like, this is it. This is it. This is how they come together. We're not going to spoil it by telling you, but of course, you know. great. yeah,
0: great, great stuff. You know, I, I have to, I do have to mention before we go, Dave. Uh, as I said, big SCTV, It was a time where I was watching SETV, thanks to syndication, more than I was watching Saturday Night Live because it was much funnier at the time. Um, and, and look at all the alumni that have gone to do other things. I mean, Eugene and what he's done with Schitt's Creek. And, um, but one of the things besides the McKenzie brothers, one of the characters, as far as impressions, I've never heard anybody do Bob Hope the way you did. I I would sit there in awe saying, my God, he's got his cadence. He's got his tone. Nobody's ever going to do him this good. It was really, really cool.
2: Well, you have to really like the person
0: to be able to do them.
2: You know, I... I wasn't the kind of mechanical impressionist like Frank Gorshin or Rich Little or comedians like that. I couldn't just do anybody's voice. There were a lot of really easy impressions that I just plain couldn't do. I had to kind of get inside the guy's head to be able to do an impersonation. And then once you're in there, it becomes easier to kind of improvise as that person. And uh, so I was a fan of an unabashed fan of Bob Hope. The younger Bob Hope in particular, the older statesman Bob Hope got a little bit unfunny and that was just a faction. It was a fact of staying too long at the party. There's a Mm -hmm. part, there's a time when you need to retire, you know? Yep. And uh, and he didn't do that. And I think he became the brunt of jokes and it kind of, but anyway, I was a fan and, you know, somebody was asking Norm MacDonald what he thought of uh, Alec Baldwin's Trump. And he said, and I don't really like it. He said, why? And Norm said, because you have to really like the person that you're impersonating in order to be able to get in there and give it some kind of humanity and some point of connection for the audience. And so he thought that Trump's, that Baldwin's Trump was just like anger and, and rage and and caricature and clownish because of that, you know? Anyway, that's my theory. And, and, and that's why I, the, the people that I could do were only people that I, you know, Richard Harris, I was a fan of Richard Harris. And, you know, when I did Richard Harris, it was affectionate. And although it didn't turn out that he viewed it that way, because I met him one time and it was pretty clear that he hated me. But, you know, but Walter Cronkite, I loved Walter Cronkite. Oh, yeah. I especially loved that he was interested in space. And yes. he stopped being a newscaster and he did his, this is a show I've always wanted to do, space, you know. And it's just like, <laughs> I was fascinated with space And that we did this parody of, we did a production of Murder in the Cathedral by the Mercury Three Players. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and it was not, and it was like astronauts doing the murder of Thomas Beckett in a zero gravity <laughs> environment. Oh, it was a really stupid, bizarre concept. But Rick was Brinkley and I was Cronkite. We were the commentators. So we 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 interrupt to do commentary during the thing. And then at the very end of it, we come together backstage and there's a couple of beautiful young models. And, and Rick says, as Brinkley, he says, oh, we thought we were going to go sailing. Walter's got a boat. And I, as Cronkite said, Oh, which which one of these is mine? And said, well, this is this is Amber. She's <laughs> pointing you, and 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 um, you know Didi Dee Dee or whatever her name is going to be with me. So anyway, the idea was that these two famous newscasters went off with a couple of hot young babes on a boat. <laughs> Cut to years later, Buck Henry introduces me to Cronkite. Oh wow! And he says. Tell me about the two girls at the end of that sketch. Why why did you do that? And I said, oh, God. I said, I'm sorry. I said, we did it because we just thought it was a kind of a cool and fun thing that you guys would go out sailing with a couple of young babes. And he said, I have no idea how much grief I got from my wife over that. Oh.
0: <laughs> That's a great story. Oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Such a special group of people, and obviously Rick as well. I mean, Joe, I mean, you can just go down and, uh, you know, uh, Andrea, Catherine. As an
1: SCTV fan, and Uh. I want to just say, I I think the fact that why SCTV was superior to SNL is, is the fact that there was an odd, well, first of all, SNL had a budget yes which which meant they didn't have to be as creative these guys had to be the other thing was that that audience was in between us when these guys came on it was intimate yes they were just talking to me i Mm -hmm. was the only guy getting the jokes in the whole world you put that live thing in with the audience and that goes away and that and and that was
0: every limitation they had they made a strength absolutely no it was the writing, the acting—it was just hysterical. And uh, for the longest time, I every Saturday night, and running at the same time as <laughs> Saturday Night Live, I, I would go. No, their show stinks. I'm going to watch SCTV. So, I mean, it was it was very fond memories. Of the sketches, there's so many that stand out to me. The Ben Hur parody is one of my favorites. It was, <laughs> it was hysterical, uh, you well, know, with, with the blue with the je- with the jeans. I mean, it was great. It was just hysterical.
2: Um, Harold Gramus takes credit for the kind of um, direction. I think that the show went. He was the head writer in the first season. I remember Eugene and I were pissed off that we 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 had no money to buy props. There was never any money to do anything, and and Harold was like, I think that's the charm of the show that, you know, it's got to be, we have to be inventive and creative, and its, it's smallness is going to be a charm because we were railing about how horrible the sets were. But Harold Harold was a very practical guy. He was very smart, and he, he would look at, no, 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 let's look at what we got, and mm-hmm. let's make the most of that, not pining about what we don't have or what we think we should have. Yeah. And... And I thought that was a very smart thing to do. And that became the kind of mantra of the show. We ended Mm. up getting more money, but we still never we never had enough ever. You
1: know,
0: sure. Sure. Max uh, Road to Perdition, among some of the other things you've written. I mean, it's what a great career. It it's it's really two superstars. I look at it from two different fields connecting here. And uh, it's such an interesting partnership. I would have never thought it. but I'm glad it's there. Uh, as far as anything you're working on now, that besides this is already done, but anything else you're working on now?
1: Well, we both have individual projects we're doing. The thing I I just wrapped up my draft of a biography of Mickey Spillane, a non Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. It, uh, my camera next year is the 75th anniversary of the creation of my camera. Wow. And I wanted, and I knew Mickey very well. And, Dave, Dave will tell you that for the last last couple of months, I've just all I've done is complain about how hard I was working. And uh, but he's got a he's got a novel in the works. Yeah, among other things. But
2: no. it's 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 actually been sitting. I'm pitching some TV show ideas right now. I don't know if they're going to go or not. I'm working actually working on a couple of them with my son, who's now a writer, and I'm trying to be useful to him as a father in some way. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, Max and I might, we're, we've talked about doing something together, whether it's going to be another Jimmy Layton or something else. I think there's definitely something else in the works. I like I like this world here. I like this little room. I like working. I like the writing, you know. I don't yeah. like performing at all. And so uh, maybe this is where I will
0: work now all the time. Not a bad deal at all, as far as, yeah. as, far as I'm concerned.
2: Not a bad deal.
0: All right. Well, the book is uh, it, the book is called "The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton," and it, we've been talking to Dave Thomas and Max Allen Collins, who are the co-writers. And it's fascinating. It's an easy read. I mean, I breezed through it pretty quickly. From what I read, and 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 we'll do so to wrap it up. But thank you both for being on. I'm a big fan of both of your. Uh, your work and to see you together is pretty cool.
1: Oh, that's that, that's Thanks. great. I, I should mention that this right now is exclusive to Amazon, so you nice. won't see, you won't see it in your bookstores. You you order it either as an ebook on Kindle or as a like I call it a real book, yes, <laughs> physical. Uh, you know, what is it? Physical media uh, from Amazon as well. Awesome. It's available for the shockingly low
2: price of eight ninety nine. So move fast, folks, while supplies last.
1: (laughs) I wish we could afford Harvey K. Tell to do that commercial for it.
0: (laughs) That'd be great. Thank you, gentlemen. Great work. Uh, Keep it up and either together or alone. But uh, awesome to talk to you. And best of luck with the many lives of Jimmy Lee.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Anytime.
0: You're always welcome. And thank you all for listening to Sci-Fi Talk. Until next time,
2: take care.